invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews once again. And today we are in chapter 8. So the 8th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And when you get there, would you rise out of reverence for God's word? As we read our passage together, we're going to read the entire chapter together. Hear the word of God. Now the point in what we were saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this, high, this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each, his, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the mighty word of God. You may be seated. <coughs> Thus far in the book of Hebrews, we have seen how Jesus is a superior high priest in a superior order of priesthood, and that he has offered a superior once-for-all-time sacrifice so that he could purchase a superior salvation for his people. And so this means that we have already looked at who, what, and why. That is, who Jesus is, what he has done, and why he did it. But one question that remains is, where? Where did Jesus, our great high priest, offer this sacrifice, this perfect offering? It is clear that he offered himself up on the altar of the cross. But what does that mean, spiritually speaking? 
Did Jesus as high priest, did he enter into the earthly temple that is in Jerusalem to present this offering before God? No. He entered into a temple that is categorically superior to the one in Jerusalem. And another question this morning is this. Since sacrifice is always performed in connection with a covenant, with what covenant was the perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered connected to? Was it connected to the old covenant? The same covenant instituted through Moses on Mount Sinai? This morning we will see that the answer is no. This perfect sacrifice was itself the institution of a new covenant, one that God had promised beforehand. And so this morning, we have two major sections, verses 1 to 6, and then verses 7 to 13. And so we have two points this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the superiority of the heavenly temple. The superiority of the heavenly temple. And secondly, we're going to look at the superiority of the new covenant. So the heavenly temple is better than the earthly temple, and the new covenant is better than that old one. So let us look together at the first section, verses 1 to 6. In this chapter, Jesus Christ is the great high priest who serves in a superior temple that is in heaven, not on earth. And the covenant that forms the basis of his ministry is a superior covenant. So let's look together at verse 1. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now it doesn't use the word temple there, but we're going to see how this is what Hebrews is talking about. Now when we think of a temple, first of all, we have to ask, well, what is a temple anyway? We have to understand that when we use the word temple, what we actually mean is a palace. A temple is a palace. It's not a palace for a king, but it's a palace for a deity. In fact, the Hebrew word for temple also means palace. So the temple slash palace of God is where the king of the universe dwells. But if a temple is to be conceived of as a palace, then that means that a temple is to have the same layout as a palace. Specifically, we're talking about the throne room, where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sits upon his glorious royal throne. And so the outer court is where the, the servants perform their daily service, but the inner court, that's where the throne is, where the king sits. And so, not just anybody can enter in there. That can only be entered by authorized personnel. That only the king can allow into his presence. That is the basic layout of a palace. And actually, that's the same layout that we see in the tabernacle that was set up by Moses according to the command of the Lord. And then, that was the same layout used for the temple that Solomon built for the name of God in Jerusalem. That's very important for us to understand that really what 
what Moses was, was required to build was not just any kind of tent. It was supposed to be a palace tent. And the building that, that uh, Solomon was called to, to build was not just a temple. It was the palace of God on earth, his dwelling place on earth. And so both the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon has those two sections, the outer room and the inner room. And so the priests performed their daily duties in the outer room. But in the inner room, in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne of God. When we think of the Ark of the Covenant, we shouldn't just think of a box. We should think of it as a throne. That is why the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. It's the mercy seat. This is a throne. The Holy of Holies represents the throne room of God. And that's why only the high priest could enter that room one day in the entire year. Because only he was allowed in. And he couldn't go in any old time he felt like. Only when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords allowed him into his throne room, into his presence. So Hebrews is saying here in verse 1 that we have such a great and excellent high priest in Jesus Christ that he entered through the outer room of the temple palace and he continued behind the curtain into the very throne room of holiness, into the presence of the living God, and he sat down at God's right hand. There is significance in the fact that he sat down. First of all, servants stand. Royalty sits. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet sees the, the seraphim angels around the throne, and then in the book of Revelation, where John sees the four fearsome cherubim angels, they are all described as standing. Why? Because they are among the greatest angelic servants of God, but still they stand in the presence of the king. However, the crown prince and king-designate the heir of the kingdom, he sits down at his father's right hand. For he rules alongside his father in co-kingship over the universe. But secondly, sitting down also signifies that Christ's work is finished. The offering that he offered has accomplished its purpose in satisfying the father's wrath. It is perfect. It was made once for all time. It can never be repeated it is finished. And that's why he sat down. Verse 2 says, it continues, it describes Christ as a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So as high priest, Jesus Christ ministers in the holy of holies. He does not have his ministry on this earth, in the earthly temple in Jerusalem. Instead, Christ serves in the true tabernacle, that is, the real temple, which exists in heaven. This is not a temple that has been made with human hands, but it's made by Yahweh God himself. Therefore, this is the true temple. This is where God truly dwells. As God says in Isaiah 66, verse 1, he says, Heaven is my throne. 
The earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is my place of rest? The temple in Jerusalem is actually a copy of the real heavenly temple. And if we think about it for just a moment, which is greater, the copy or the original that was copied? We all know that the original is superior to any copies. And so verse 5 says, look with me there, verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, this means tabernacle, when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So how does Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, how does he know that there is a, a heavenly temple, which is the original, and also an earthly temple, which is the copy? Well, he takes this idea from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, receiving the law from God. But at the same time, God gives to Moses meticulous and precise instructions for the setting up of the tabernacle, which was the tent in which God would fill with his presence to dwell among the children of Israel in the wilderness. And God takes the time to describe to Moses not only the layout of the temple, or rather the tabernacle, but also its material, its dimensions, its colors, the furniture that needs to be placed in it, the clothes for the priests, and even the way that the sacrifices were to be offered. So God describes everything down to a T, and he tells Moses, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It's like God has given Moses precise blueprints for the tabernacle. And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, God got those blueprints from somewhere. This must mean that there's a heavenly tabernacle, that is, a heavenly temple palace from which this pattern these blueprints were taken. And so the layout of the earthly tabernacle that will eventually be used for the temple in Jerusalem is based on and is a copy of the true temple palace that God has in heaven. But Hebrews says here in verse 5 that they're not just a copy of the things that are in heaven, that is, the heavenly realities, he says here that they are mere shadows of them. That's going a step further. A shadow is something that, that doesn't even come close in comparison with the thing cast in that shadow. If I hold my hand up to the light and I can see the shadow, there's no comparison between the two. A shadow is a dark outline of the reality. And so Hebrews is saying here that the temple in Jerusalem and everything going on there with the priests and the sacrifices and the offerings and the ceremonies and the rituals, they are at best a shadowy copy of the heavenly realities. And our great high priest, Jesus Christ, he didn't serve at the copy. He didn't serve at the shadows on earth. No. He entered into the original, into the reality in heaven, into the real temple, into the real throne room. Verse 6, 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent, that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So Jesus Christ serves in a more excellent high priestly ministry because he serves in a superior temple. The original, the real, the heavenly temple where God dwells in the truest and fullest sense. And in the same way, the old covenant is but a copy and a shadow of the new covenant. That's how much more excellent the new covenant is over its predecessor. But wait a minute. You might say, well, wasn't the Old Covenant instituted by God himself? How can Hebrews say these things about the Old Testament? How can he say in verse 13 that the Old Covenant is obsolete and ready to vanish away? We must understand here that Hebrews is not saying that the Old Covenant was bad. He's not saying that it was unnecessary or that it didn't serve a purpose in the plan of God. He's not saying that. The Old Covenant was good. It was very necessary. And it served an important purpose in laying the foundation, paving the way for the coming of the New Covenant. But what Hebrews is saying is that the New Covenant is so much superior, so much more excellent, that it makes the Old Covenant unnecessary. That this is what God had in mind all the way along. It was part of his grand design to use the old covenant to lay the groundwork, to lay the framework, paving the way for the coming reality of the new covenant. So to go back to the shadows of the old covenant, when the real thing is right here now in the new covenant, is simply unthinkable. Because the latter is so much superior to the former. So that is our first point this morning, that Jesus serves as high priest in a superior temple. And why should that matter to us today? It's because our assurance of salvation is not tied to earthly shadows, but rather to heavenly realities. Our king is no earthly king. Rather, he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Our high priest is no earthly priest serving in an earthly temple. Rather, he bypassed all that and he went straight to the top. Entering into the original heavenly temple. Our high priest does not offer an imperfect sacrifice that must be repeated over and over again. Rather, our high priest offered one single unrepeatable perfect for all time sacrifice. And then he sat down, work finished. And so our assurance as believers is not shadowy, wishful thinking, but rather we have a real assurance that we will be saved because we have the real high priest who offered the real sacrifice in the real temple. Our second point this morning focuses in on the superiority of the new covenant. Look with me at verse 7. Hebrews says this, For if that first covenant had been found faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for another, or for a second one. So Hebrews has used this kind of logic before in the book. He said, if you recall, he said that if Joshua 
had given the children of Israel rest in the promised land when he led them into Canaan? Why did God talk of another rest to the psalmist David? And so Hebrews thinks, well, this must mean that there is another rest, a true Sabbath rest. So we saw that line of logic. We also saw this one. And if the Levitical priesthood had been good enough and sufficient, why did God talk about a priest in the order of Melchizedek? This must mean that there is another high priest, a better high priest. And so we've seen Hebrews use this kind of logic before. And now he's using that same interpretive logic here as well. He's thinking, if the first covenant, the old covenant made through Moses at Mount Sinai, had really done the job, had really been sufficient, had been good enough, then why does the prophet Jeremiah talk about a new covenant that God will make? So this must mean that there is a superior covenant coming. And it must also mean that there is a deficiency in the old covenant. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if a new covenant is needed, then that must mean that there's something broke with the old one. But wait a second. God instituted the first one. How can there be fault in something that God has instituted? We see a clue to the answer at verse 8. There's a little clue. For he finds fault with them when he says, Did you catch that? God finds fault with it, that is, with the covenant? No, it says here, God finds fault with who? With them, that is, with the covenant keepers. So the fault or the blame does not lie in the covenant itself, but rather with the people trying to keep the covenant. God made a perfect and good and holy covenant with an imperfect people who failed continually and turned away constantly. Why? Because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They had hearts of stone consumed with sin. And so the fault does not lie with God or with the covenant he made, but rather with the people who accepted it. Remember how Moses, he wasn't even down from Mount Sinai yet, and the people had already broken the covenant? by worshipping a golden idol, a golden calf. And then, remember when we went through the book of Judges, and we saw how the Israelites went sliding down on their downward spiral into sin, and they had every benefit, they had every advantage, and yet because they had sinful hearts, they simply could not keep the covenant in their own strength and power. And the Apostle Paul says this, of the human heart in Romans seven in Romans eight seven and eight, he says, "The sinful mind is hostile to God; it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. That is the whole problem. So the premise is that, that the fault did not lie in the covenant itself, but in the sinful people who could not keep it. This is confirmed in verse nine." Look at verse 9 quickly with me. Here, quoting Jeremiah, God is, is giving the reason why he is making a new covenant that will not be like the old one. Notice what he says here. He says, For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. Ah, 
So that's the reason why a new covenant is needed. It's because the real problem lies not with the covenant itself, but rather with the people who simply failed to keep it. The old covenant was external. It commanded spiritually dead people to do spiritually living things, and they simply could not do it. And so a new covenant was needed. Not an external one like the old covenant, but in, instead an internal covenant that changed the heart first. And so through the prophet Jeremiah in the 31st chapter of that book, God had promised to institute a new covenant that would not be like the old one. It would be something totally new and totally different. So let's read this together again. Verse 8. <coughs> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. So in this quotation from Jeremiah, let's take note of four aspects of this new covenant that are prophesied through Jeremiah that distinguish it from the old covenant. So first of all, it says, it will not be inscribed on tablets of stone, but rather God's teachings will be written directly on the people's minds and hearts. Secondly, there shall be intimate relationship between God and his people. Thirdly, it will not be a mixed multitude of saints and sinners. Instead, every single person in the new covenant will in, innately possess intimate and direct knowledge of God. And fourthly, it will be based on full mercy and full forgiveness of sins. So let's take a moment now to just unpack these four aspects of the New Covenant as it is prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and then quoted here in Hebrews chapter 8. So first of all, God says to Jeremiah, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the laws are the terms of the covenant. It's like all the fine print you see in a contract. And God is saying here that the terms of the covenant represented by all the laws and teachings of God, will not be external to his people, not outside of them, but rather he's going to inscribe the terms of the covenant directly upon their hearts and minds. Now here in this passage, God does not explain how he's going to do that. He doesn't give us the means by which he will accomplish this. But in light of our receiving of the new covenant, we know that God has accomplished this by the Holy Spirit that he has given each believer in Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit indwelling every real Christian. The Holy Spirit, this is what he does. He writes the teachings of God upon the believer's heart directly so that we can understand God's will and walk in 
step with his purposes. By writing directly on minds and hearts, God is implying that he will transform the people of the new covenant from the inside out. That first he will remove their hearts of stone and replace them with beating hearts of flesh. But that they will gladly keep his covenant from the heart. The second element here is that God says that they shall be my people. This signifies that there will be an intimate relationship between God and his people. Close fellowship and communion. It is through Jesus Christ that this intimacy has been most fully achieved. In the language of Jesus himself, it is the closeness between the good shepherd and his sheep. He knows them. He calls them by name. He gently cares for them. They know him and they follow him wherever he leads, trusting him completely to green pastures and by still waters. The intimacy between the shepherd and his sheep is so close that it corresponds to the intimacy between the father and the son. And the good shepherd loves his sheep so much that he lays down his life for them. This is the language of close and intimate Fellowship. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This has been fulfilled and achieved through Jesus Christ. The third aspect of the new covenant as prophesied through Jeremiah is that everyone will know God directly. Verse 11 says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The children of Israel were all circumcised as one people, but they did not all have hearts of faith. Some genuinely believed, while others retained hearts of stone and just went through the religious motions. And because of this mixture of unbelievers and believers, it was necessary for the people to teach one another and to encourage and exhort one another to know the Lord. But in contrast with this, in the new covenant, Every member of the new covenant will know God directly. Here again, this is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, who gives us direct knowledge and understanding of God through his word. And as Christians in the new covenant, we still teach each other, yes, and we still exhort one another to know the Lord. But the difference is that our exhortation to one another is this, know the Lord better. Grow in the Lord. Mature in your understanding. Deepen your knowledge of God. So that is the privilege we have in the new covenant. That we all have direct knowledge of God because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and directs us through his word. And the fourth aspect of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 is probably the most important one. Verse 12 for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. How is this going to be accomplished? God does not mention here how he will do this. But as re recipients of the new covenant, we know very well how God has pulled this off. He sent his one and only son into the world as the atoning sacrifice that we might live through him so that all who look to the son and believe in him will have eternal life and Jesus will raise him or her up on the last day. This is how a perfectly just God 
can be merciful toward the iniquities of his people, such that he remembers their sins no more. It is the cross that makes this possible. The last verse of our passage says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In this final verse of chapter 8, Hebrews boldly says that the old covenant is obsolete. It's outdated. It's fading fast. Now does he mean here, does he mean that we can now take the Old Testament and throw it away in the trash bin? That we can disregard everything that the Old Testament says? That we can rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles? No, of course not. Hebrews is talking about the ceremonial aspect of the Old Testament. The temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the Sabbath. None of these things apply anymore in the New Covenant. Because a perfect high priest has come. And he has entered the real, original, heavenly temple. And he has offered one single, unrepeatable, fully satisfying, perfect sacrifice. Allowing us entrance into God's eternal Sabbath rest. But everything else in the Old Testament that teaches us morality and the character of God and his activity in creation and his salvation for his people Israel, all these things still retain their full validity. And so this morning we have seen how our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, entered a superior temple and he has provided the basis for a better covenant with redeemed people and transformed hearts. Does that describe you this morning? Are you trusting in this high priest? Have you placed your faith in the sacrifice that he offered? Has God's covenant been written on your heart and mind by the Holy Spirit? Have your iniquities been forgiven so that God no longer remembers your sins because a perfect sacrifice has been offered on your behalf? This is the blessedness of the new covenant. Those who enter into this new covenant with God enter into eternal fellowship with him to enjoy him forever. When we as Christians understand where Christ offered his perfect sacrifice, where he did it, in the heavenly palace temple where God dwells most fully, this ought to increase our awe for its perfection even more. Wow! Jesus really did offer a totally and completely perfect sacrifice before God. And when we as Christians understand that this perfect sacrifice instituted a new covenant with God, founded on better promises, this ought to deepen our assurance even more. Wow! God has written his law on my mind and my heart by his Holy Spirit so that I may truly know him. For my iniquities have been forgiven and my sins forgotten because of the satisfaction that Christ has made on my behalf. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a salvation. All glory be to Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your plan of salvation. What an incredible design that you laid such a meticulous groundwork 
and foundation, paving the way through the old covenant for the new covenant that would come. And so we give you thanks for these things, Father. We thank you for where Jesus did this. He entered into the real temple, the heavenly temple, your very presence, your throne room, as he offered this perfect offering, and then he sat down because it was finished. So let us have that even deeper awe for the perfection of his offering. And at the same time, let us stand in awe of this beautiful, beautiful new covenant that you have made with us, where you have written your law directly upon us, where you have said you will be our God and we shall be your people, that we shall know you directly and we will not need priests or fellow brothers and neighbors to say, no, the Lord, because we know you directly through Jesus Christ. And most of all, Father, that our iniquities have been forgiven and that you have forgotten our sins because they are your wrath has been totally satisfied. Father, help us to live in these things, to walk in light of this truth from your word. May it fill us with greater and deeper assurance that you are a God who keeps his promises. And may it spur us on and motivate us to deeper love for you in all that we do. That we would grow in the knowledge and love for you as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. We thank you, Father, for this new covenant. For it is not external to us, commanding us to obey, but rather it is internal to us because you have started from the inside out and you have replaced our hearts with spiritual living hearts that seek to love and honor you above all things. Father, help us to live and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and the calling that we have received. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray all these things. Amen. Mm -hmm.